So on retreats like this, we talk a lot about how to practice all the meditation instructions we give every morning and afternoon. And we also talk a lot about the difficulties and the challenges in practice, because that is what we're often dealing with as we settle into a retreat. So it can be really helpful um, to have that, those kind of supports and maps and instructions. But the emphasis on the difficulties and the challenges, the hindrances, the calaces, the emotional karmic knots that we might be uh, untangling can give uh, this practice a bad rap sometimes. It's kind of all around suffering. And you can even hear people interpret the first noble truth as, oh, the Buddha said, life is suffering. It's all suffering. And he didn't actually say that. He actually said, there is suffering. There's a, this is the truth, that if you have a mind and a body, there will be suffering. And it can also seem like retreats are kind of gloomy at times. You know, people are sort of wandering around, and as we're not engaged in uh, social conversations, the faces tend to settle into this soft look that can be interpreted sometimes as, you know, everyone looks kind of gloomy and sad. Really encourage you not to project onto other people's experiences. You cannot know what's going on. And there is a softening that happens in the face as we, we practice in this way. But I actually think it's quite beautiful. Let go of some of the tension and the agitation in the face. But it can also feel like your inner practice is on what I call pain patrol. You know, where's the next problem? Where's the next problem in the body? Where's the next upset in the mind, in the heart? And so this kind of alert, and we're just on guard for, for, for what the difficulty is. But the Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. And yes, the first noble truth is there is suffering. The second looks at the cause of suffering, craving, tanha. But the third and fourth are the uh, end of suffering and the way to the end of suffering. So this is integral to our practice. So, uh, you know, sometimes we don't talk so much about why we practice and where this practice is heading. And that's a bit of what I want to talk about tonight, why we do this, what gets cultivated, and where this path is leading. And I've included in, I think, all of my talks so far from my repertoire of meditation cartoons. Um, Most of them don't seem to know that much about meditation, but I can tell they're getting a little more sophisticated, again, as mindfulness is seeping in. So this is one I saw a little while ago. There's a couple watching television, and the television is blaring these words. You can tell this is the big advertisement on the television that they you know their eyes are open watching and the the big words say this week on the amazing race to enlightenment can jim and susie achieve right mindfulness <laughs> and will bob and candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self <laughs> the race to enlightenment so i'm sure you know there's no race here we're actually practicing to land here, to be fully here, and to cultivate happiness and contentment here and now, not some future experience. And so there's many um, teachings in the Buddha's discourses, these 26 volumes of texts that we're so blessed to have, that talk about the path to freedom 
and the qualities, the beautiful qualities of mind and heart that we develop on the way, but that we need to develop on the way, that are integral to this unfolding. And there are lists like the seven factors of awakening that Bonnie spoke about the other night, the five spiritual faculties, the Brahma-viharas, these divine abidings that we're um, practicing in the afternoons. We're doing now metta, and we'll go on to the others, the other three in the um, last two weeks of this month of retreat, the paramis, the ten perfections, again, that we're uh, encouraged to cultivate. So lots of lists about these um, beautiful qualities. I want to talk about one list tonight that are very wholesome um, uh, qualities of mind that actively and directly point to the importance of happiness in our practice and on the path and how it's necessary uh, for us as we deepen. And it's not, a, such, it's not a list that many of you might be familiar with, so I uh, invite you to sit back and listen. Um, and I think I said in another talk, because I like talking about happiness, that the Buddha was known as the happy one, Sugata, the happy one. Um, But the kind of happiness of the Buddha, the kind of happiness that he was pointing to, wasn't a la-di-da kind of happiness, wasn't sort of ice cream and fairy floss or whatever your idea of, you know, just getting sense desires might be. It was really a profound sense of well-being. And I think it's actually helpful for us to explore a little bit for ourselves, and I'm not encouraging a lot of thinking. This is more a feeling into what is happiness for us. When I teach metta retreats, I actively encourage people to do that as we sit down and say, may I be happy? What do we mean? What does happiness mean? One of the definitions I've I've liked uh, of what happiness is, is from a book called The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People, How We Choose to Be Happy. And it's by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who actually live in the East Bay. They've come here a number of times to Spirit Rock. They're good friends with James. They're both on the same path, kind of awakening happiness, awakening joy in people. But they have a great definition where they say, our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement living in the moment, and enjoying life's bounty. So there's a lot in that that could be said by a Buddhist teacher or Buddhist practitioner. Living in the moment, contentment, a sense of meeting what life um, challenges you with, both the good and the difficult. This is what we practice for, to have this kind of capacity. And their book really points out that this just is not a random arising. You can actually create intentions in the mind and a direction in the life's path that cultivate that kind of happiness. And that's definitely what we're doing here. We're training in happiness, but not 
just for happiness's sake, even though that's a great blessing and benefit from this kind of practice, but really seeing it as integral to the path and onward leading, as in leading us deeper into the Eightfold Path and the the path of awakening. Someone, I think, mentioned this quote already, uh, Bhikkhu Analeo, who's a very uh, deep practitioner and scholar, has a line in one of his books where he said, the whole of the Buddhist path could be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. And I love that as a counterbalance to you know, the Four Noble Truths that start with there is suffering. The fact that we can actively train in and deepen in happiness and joy is also an integral part of the path. How we do this through this practice, it's a two-fold or two-prong approach. Um, We need to feed and cultivate the wholesome states of mind and heart, starting by recognizing them, nurturing them, and we starve or diminish and even abandon, let go of, the hindering, the challenging, the suffering states of mind and heart. And so the Buddha gave a lot of maps to us for how to do that, and all of us will find different ones useful at different times. But the purpose of these lists and these maps, for me, they really develop confidence. I know that someone's walked this terrain before. There is a way uh, to more happiness, contentment, peace, and freedom. That there's a, there's a map there that we can trust. Much better than the Apple GPS maps that came out that had people driving into rivers or whatever. And, you know, any GPS can get you into trouble at times. These maps are time-tested. Millions of people, thousands of years of practicing. And map, in some ways, I like that analogy, but it also sort of speaks to getting somewhere a distant goal. Really, the um, emphasis is always find this here and now. This practice is in the moment, and the contentment and well-being we can discover is available here and now through the mind training that we're doing here, and really to see that this is what we're doing in a retreat like this. We're training the mind to be um, more responsive and really to purify the mind and heart of these difficult moods, emotions, and experiences. And so the mind actually becomes our ally. The Buddha says something like, the untrained mind is worse for you than your worst enemy, but the trained mind is a better support than your best friend. So this training of the mind and heart, inclining and leaning towards, leading towards more happiness and well-being. And one of the really important aspects of this training, as the Buddha outlined it, is the deepening of concentration. Samadhi is the Pali word, and it's one of the path factors, so it's part of the Eightfold Path, where it's Sama Samadhi, right or wise uh, concentration. And it's usually typically or literally defined in the text as the four jhanas, which are absorptions. I'll talk a little bit about those later on. But we often translate this word samadhi as concentration. It's a pretty good translation, but it's not a great one because most of us in English tend to think of concentration as a kind of narrowing of focus and a sense of don't bother me, I'm concentrating, you know, 
have to have the conditions perfect and then I can concentrate and there's this narrow and, and, and can feel like a tight kind of focus. Samadhi isn't narrow or tight. Uh, a better definitions of samadhi are, are words like unification of mind, stability of mind, collected, to collect and unify the mind. This is pointing more in the direction of this capacity of mind of samadhi. And I think it's really helpful for us as serious practitioners, you're here on a month or two retreat, definitely uh, apply, to know a bit of this terrain uh, of the developing of uh, samatha, samadhi practice, and vipassana, what we're teaching and practicing mainly on this retreat. I teach a concentration retreat here at Spirit Rock pretty much every year where we really explore this terrain. What is it like to deepen and steady the mind in concentration and then open that steadied, uh, unified mind to changing objects in Vipassana? Really very valuable for people. But we can explore it a little on this retreat because a longer retreat really um, can allow that kind of developing. So the main instructions we're giving on this retreat are for vipassana, using mindfulness to open our experience, as Guy was pointing to this morning, to uh, the whole range of changing experiences. But we're always developing some level of concentration. We need some steadiness of mind to do that. You know, remember how you were on the first day of the retreat, or perhaps you can remember the first time you sat down to meditate, you know, it was all over the place. You didn't know even where the body, what your body, what do you mean feel the body or the breath? Couldn't find any aspect of this experience. Um, but now we are deepening in that. We've, you know, settling into the retreat some, some way in now. And we're developing some steadiness of attention. All of you are reporting some degree of that. The kind of concentration we develop on a vipassana retreat is called kanika samadhi. That means moment-to-moment concentration where the object might be uh, changing, but through the continuity of attention, we're actually steadying and deepening the concentration. So a little different than samatha practice, which is tranquility practice where we really steady and calm the whole experience by choosing a simple or a single object, like the breath, typically, or um, metta can be a samatha object because we just steady the mind through the uh, phrases. So it's often called calm abiding. There's a real sense of simplicity and steadiness in the practice as opposed to the real openness of vipassana. Samatha is what the practice is called. Samatha practice, tranquility practice, calm abiding practice, very simple practices. Samadhi is really the result. And so you can kind of see these as two quite distinct practices. Um, But how I see it is it's like there's a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, they look quite different. The samatha practices, very simple, very calming, very steadying. And we're just choosing, say, the breath in preference to all other objects. Always saying, not now, not now, and choosing the breath. Um, And the other end, more vipassana, the openness. 
At the, so at either end, they can look quite different. But you can also see them as not separate, that we're just flowing easily between these two and not creating them as separate. And that many of us are actually practicing it in that way. We're somewhere in the middle, which is a great place to be. And we know when we can move kind of in response to conditions to more one direction or the other. Um, So this is actually a very skillful way to practice. Enough concentration to deepen and steady the mind, but also this openness to the changing objects that reveals the nature of reality, the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self. And we'll probably talk about those in another talk or two. So all of us are deepening to some extent in concentration. Again, um, one of the levels of concentration that's often talked about is called access or neighborhood concentration. And that's sort of close to the level of absorption, but not quite settling into that level. But it's, it's close to it, so access or neighborhood. And often considered enough concentration. Mind is steady with chosen objects, doesn't get distracted a lot, the hindrance is not so active. That level of concentration is considered enough for insight practice. So all of us are moving in this field. Wherever you find you are, over these days of practice, this is the direction that we go to more steadying and more um, connection. The factors that I want to talk about tonight that support this process that you are doing, whether you are aware of it or not, are called the jhanic factors, the five jhanic factors. And these are five very wholesome mental states that we are always cultivating. Whatever kind of meditation we're doing, in concentration practice, we can cultivate them quite deliberately. But in any kind of um, dedicated meditation practice, these factors will be cultivated. And they're called jhanic factors because they aid access to jhana. And jhanas are states of absorption where there's a qualitative shift in the mind and the capacity for um, the steadiness of attention. It kind of drops to another level and gets absorbed into uh, the chosen object, the object of meditation, and becomes very still, can become very deep and very profound. So these uh, jhana jhanic qualities both are the doorways to that experience and then actually comprise the experience itself and the deepening of these factors actually deepens the states of jhana. So you may not have heard this list before. It's not something we talk about on short retreats. Most people don't get in this territory or it's, it's, it's not so useful to talk about. But as I go through them, you may recognize these qualities as being present in you, whether they're you know, currently available or experiences in the past. They are the components of any meditation practice that's sustained over time. So they're the positive qualities. As I said, there's a two-pronged approach um, for happiness. This is one list that brings these positive qualities. And the hindering 
um, qualities that I'll specifically refer to tonight are our old friends, the hindrances, because each one is balanced by and has an antidote in the jhana factors. They actually match each other, and the more we cultivate the jhana factors, the hindrances get literally weakened and can be actually um, quite at bay through these practices. But we need to start with this um, this two-pronged approach to happiness. We can't just, you know, great, these sound wonderful, get me more of those jhana factors. The practice starts with working skillfully with the hindrances. And that can, that can be as simple as recognizing if the mind isn't steady and collected, one or more of the hindrances are present. This is the kind of harsh news of this kind of practice, this um, sort of clear seeing of what's in the mind and the heart. Because it is the hindrances that prevent this steadying of the mind that I'm talking about and this deepening into happiness. So we've talked a lot about working with them, how mindfulness is our first resort and often all we need, we bring mindfulness to the hindrances and the power of mindfulness when it meets a difficult state of mind, its tendency is diminish that, to, to soften that, to allow that to um, actually move out of the field of energy. When mindfulness meets a wholesome state of mind, its tendency is to empower it, to actually make it, uh, to cultivate it, to nourish and nurture it. So mindfulness is always the start. But then we have all these skillful means that we've been talking about. RAIN, the acronym of recognize, accept or allow, bring interest or intimacy to the experience and just accept that it's nature, that's natural, that this should be here arising out of conditions, not personal. Sometimes we need to take a break when we're working with strong hindrances. Go get a cup of tea, you know, shift the energy, use antidotes. But I'll talk about how these jhanic factors are also our active allies in this process of diminishing the hindrances. So the first two factors in this list are in Pali, vitaka and vichara. Vitaka is usually defined as the aiming or initial application of attention or energy towards the object. So it's directing our attention, picking out an object and directing our attention to it. Vichara is the sustaining of the attention on the object. So we've the in, in, intention, the in, interest has chosen an object, and sometimes it's the same object, but we've chosen an object, and the vichara stays with that object for some period of time, c- continued connection. Upandita would talk about these two factors as uh, aiming and rubbing. So aiming and then rubbing. Just aiming the attention and then deepening the connection. In the text, they're often spoken of as applied and then sustained thought. And it's interesting that the literal definition includes some aspect of mental activity. That I don't really think it's talking about thinking in the normal way we think about it, but using that mental energy of the mind to get clear about the object. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who teaches a lot about breath meditation, would say in about these factors, it's thinking about the breath. 
So how is the breath? Am I connected to the breath? Is the breath comfortable? What kind of breath is this? And to see that we can actually have that kind of inquiry, even without using the words that I just did. But it's this getting closer, more intimate again with the breath. And so they're usually spoken of together, vitaka vichara, these sort of hand-in-hand factors um, of connecting and then sustaining. And as I said, these are necessary for any kind of meditation practice you might do. They're actually necessary for anything you want to cultivate in your life, anything you want to learn, anything you want to train in, anything you want to deepen in. These qualities of connecting with and then sustaining that attention, that interest, that um, ability to be with. When we use, when these are functioning, really important and helpful to see them as short moments of time. You don't come in at the beginning of 45 minute meditation period and say, I'm going to connect with the body or the breath and then try to sustain it. Vitaka and Vichara are in these short mind moments. So one in-breath, connect, sustain. One out-breath, one sound. Perhaps a step in your walking meditation, a sight, um, even a thought has a beginning. You, s- you recognize the beginning and you sustain the attention over and over. So we're doing it over and over again. And the vi- if the vitaka is there, the vichara maybe can follow. Vichara needs vitaka to have that invitation into presence. But these two factors are what builds what we've been emphasizing in the retreat, continuity. Over and over again, they're the um, engines of the practice. If we don't sustain through these two factors, this is where the hindrances have a field day. If we don't connect to what's happening, hindrances often arise. If we don't sustain the connection, hindrances have a place to get in. So they're really important for this uh, continuity of attention. Vitaka, this first factor of aiming, is the antidote to sloth and torpor, or Toth and slopper as it is when you can't even remember what it is. Like, what is that again? Can't even say the words, but you know what I'm talking about. Sleepiness, dullness, spaciness, heaviness, fogginess, drifting. And, you know, all of you reported it in the early days of retreat. It can still happen in waves due to conditions, due to energy. But as we settle into the retreat and we are deepening to whatever extent in continuity and concentration, a different kind of hindrance of sloth and torpor can come in, and that's what we call sinking mind. And sinking mind is um, a result of the steadiness of practice. The energy is calming, but what happens often as we get calm We get too calm, right? And so what can happen is we're trucking along in practice. It seems like we're connected. It seems like we're pretty present. And then it's like someone turns the light out. It can kind of nod off quickly or go into fuzziness out of what was, you didn't even notice the sleepiness was there, but there was a softness in the concentration, a softness in the awareness. And then this kind of sinking mind 
can result. So it's a different, it's not garden variety sleepiness. It's an imbalance in concentration and energy. And it's their two factors that, uh, a shorthand for the factors of awakening that are really helpful to keep an eye on. And if you find that that's happening, this kind of short circuiting or spacing out, this is an area to look into. And what's interesting is the same um, things that we do for garden variety sleepiness can work. Opening the eyes, uh, sitting up straighter, um, bringing in more vitaka, connecting more clearly to the object, especially if it's not just exhaustion of the body and mind that we had at the beginning of the retreat. It's just bringing in a little more interest because vitaka, as we connect, brings a little more zing in every time we connect with the object there's a little positive feedback can be very subtle but it actually really brightens uh, the mind and there's this um, positive reinforcement this noticing of the beginnings of things also brightens the mind as we sort of see the arisings of experience and this sort of can be a freshness even with an in-breath if we're really truly there with an in-breath, it's a new experience. So Vitaka really can highlight that. So again, finding what works. If you notice that um, sleepiness, dullness, sinking mind are present in your practice, Vitaka, this connecting, being a little more diligent, a little clearer in actually knowing the breath or knowing the object, knowing the mental state that's present really can help. And as I said, the other things that we've also talked about, stretching, opening the eyes. For me, breathing more deeply was a really helpful antidote. I was on a long retreat where every morning was like clockwork at 10.30, middle of the morning, you know, not normally a time to be sleepy. And I'd just be doing that, you know, that perpetual motion thick duck thing that goes into this, the, you know, you know uh, we see it, you're all doing it at times. You know. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? You know, I, I slept okay, I was really interested a moment ago, and then I just go into this state of, of bobbing and, you know, oh, this fog, and it was so unpleasant. And at times, you know, I was practicing in my room, I'd just say, I'm going to go lie down. You know, this is ridiculous. I'd lie down wide awake. You've you done that right, wide awake. Go back and sit, oh, no. So it was sinking mind. So I just resolved to breathe a little more deeply. And it made such a difference. Those sittings actually became the best sittings of the day for me because the calm and the concentration was already there. I just needed to bring a little more energy in and the factors came more in balance. I think a big part of what the shift there was also the intention to do something about it, not just saying, oh, this is so hard, I'm so sleepy, I'm doing it, oh. Or just, you know, oh, this is so pleasant. Just so. <laughs> to actually make the determination to do something about it. So that's the vitaka, connecting more, brightening the mind, vitaka. And also it's to say, it's okay to modify the breath. We often talk about letting the breath be natural. Great instruction, most of the time, that's how we want to practice. But the breath is a great tool to bring more energy or to calm energy. And knowing how to do that skillfully, really helpful. So the next of these factors is vichara. And it, that's the sustaining quality in the mind. It is an antidote to doubt. Because 
as we steady experience, we start to know it more clearly. Doubt is actually, I think, the most difficult hindrance we can struggle with. Actually, I think the most difficult hindrance is the one you're struggling with right now, right? This, oh, this is impossible, sense doubt, whatever it is. But doubt certainly has its challenges because it leads to confusion, uncertainty. We, we, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to trust. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our capacity. We doubt the practice. You know, why am I here? What am I doing here? What am I meant to be doing? And am I doing it? Do I know what I'm doing? Am I doing it right? You know, are other people doing? What are they doing? Do they doing it right? Do they know what they're doing? You know, do the teachers know what? I'm sorry, the teachers don't even know what they You know, it doubt everything. And it's debilitating, right? Because it just doesn't allow us to sink into the present moment. We're always kind of floating around in that. So vichara is this ability or, or quality of mind that let, lets us sink into experience. Whatever it is, a sensation, a mood, a thought, a sound, we're there for it and we know it. No one needs to tell us what that experience is. No one else can. We see it for ourselves. So really develops faith. The anti- uh, you know, antidote to doubt, obviously, is faith. Doubt keeps us superficial. Doubt keeps us kind of never really landing. Vichara and this energy of sustaining really helps. I really had a, a lesson in this a number of years ago. Guy and I decided we would like to learn to scuba dive, We'd done quite a bit of snorkeling, which I love and still love. But, you know, you have a sense. It's like meditation. Oh, if it's great at this level, going deeper must be even better, right? It's like go for a month or two retreat. That's even better. Well, we had that idea. And so all of these sort of factors came into play, wanting to do it, traveling to Australia to visit my family. We found out we could get for free a stopover, layover in Fiji. And we found out that in Fiji, you can... Uh, learn to scuba dive pretty cheaply. In retrospect, I realized it's kind of like the ads you see in the paper, you know, cut price LASIK surgery. It's not kind of two things you want to put together. It's like, let me get the cheapest bargain basement, you know, person drilling into my eyes or teaching me to scuba dive, which is really a death-defying kind of thing. I mean, it's not hospitable down there, right, for human beings. But anyway, we didn't think about all that. We thought, this sounds really, Fiji sounds lovely. It's, you know, it's fairly reasonably priced. We can stop over there for free. So we we make the decision and we, you know, how you, you find out. So we made this decision to go, we didn't know anything about it. And so we find a Fiji, find a Vanuatu, then we get a little plane there, and then someone, you know, just says, you come with us, and we get on a boat and go around, and there's no roads on this island, we, they drop us off, we're like, okay, here we are. And it was a pretty funky kind of resort, in truth. Um, but the guy who was to teach us scuba diving was a Fijian man named Ezra, and he was built like a mountain. And I had faith in Ezra, you know, <laughs> I, I, he was a, I could just tell he was a really good person and a good teacher. The equipment was a little on the shabby side, must be. But, you know, we trusted the equipment. But the other thing we didn't factor in, one of the reasons it was cheap, cyclone season in January. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know how we didn't research that, but anyway. So 
you know, week stay, we hear there is a cyclone coming towards the end of our stay, but, you know, we're there until then. But the waves are building. There is no hotel pool at this place, so we have to do our beginning dives in the ocean. And the waves are building up, and it's not an easy, you know, it wasn't an easy entry. There's a lot of coral and reefs out there and rock and stone, but like we follow, we get the instructions on land, but then you go in the water to different experience, right? So we're going on one of our first shore dives, sort of, so Ezra goes first, Guy follows him, and I don't know how much you know about scuba diving. You, know, you, have, you have weights to make you sink, an air, a buoyancy vest to make you rise, and this tube with buttons that sort of regulates whether you go up or down. So he told us how to use this and we start going down and I'm last and I see them, they're kind of heading down, down and I realize I've got to press one of these buttons but <laughs> danged if I remembered, with, you know. And so what do you do? You start not going down, press the other one, nope, not going. <laughs> so I'm pressing and pressing and, and you know what they say about space, no one hears you scream, they don't hear in water either. So I'm like, because they're going down, 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 and I'm like going up, up, up. And so eventually, you know, it's the three-dimensional thing of, of being underwater. It's, and finally, I see Ezra finding, I should check, you know, where that, he looks around. There's Guy, and he's like, you know, oh, there she is. I'm like, been to the sea. So he comes up, and he explains to me that when you want to sink, which button it is, but you have to hold it above your head to actually let the air go out, which I'm sure he had told me, but this is why I tell this story. The vichara part is listening and sustaining the attention (laughs) on the important instructions because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was just flailing around, trying anything, and it was just so interesting that that flailing around, what did it do? Superficial. I couldn't get deeper because I didn't know how to do it. So, vichara, antidote to doubt, you know your experience and you know the techniques and what works. It helps you land in experience. So vitaka vichara, these first two qualities, as they steady and stabilize our practice, they're kind of the engines of practice, also working with these, um, balancing these hindrances of sleepiness and doubt, they lead to the third factor, which is pitti, P-I-T-I, usually translated as rapture or joy, zeal. It's also an awakening factor. So Bonnie was talking about it the other night. And it's, it's such an interesting um, functioning. It's a mental factor, but it, it manifests often in the body. And what happens with pity, you, often in practice, when we first start practicing, it's like our attention Say this, ball, this bell was turned upside down and you tried to place a little ball, like a ball bearing on top, right? It would just fall off really easily. It's really hard to get it to just balance on the bell. That's like your mindfulness, just falls away. As we practice, it flattens out and it's more like a, a level plane. And the, the attention, the ball can move, but it has to be kind of pushed to be moved. Ultimately, it gets turned upside down, and the attention just rests. This is when pity can start to manifest, when we sink into our object, whether it's the simple object of samatha, breath, brahmaviharas, or the more open attention of vipassana, but the attention stays steady. We get absorbed into um, 
the experience. This is when pity can start to arise. And as I said, it's a mental factor, but it's often felt in the body. There's classic descriptions of pity, like the hairs rising on the body, flashes of lightning, waves of energy, uplifting rapture. You feel like you're actually going to float in the air or bounce around, pervading rapture where... Uh, the energy is pervaded through the whole body. We can also experience it as rocking or pushing lights in the distortions of perception. Um, and usually when I describe, any of us describe rapture, I can see people go, oh, goodies, you know, how do I get that? Or I'm not having that, I want that. Rapture is a, a wholesome mental state in the context of certain states of meditation, but it's not necessarily pleasant. It can actually... It can be, be sometimes a kind of energy that that snowballs and actually can at times be um, a challenge in practice. So it's a whole art of how to work skillfully with pity and be quite intense. But rapture counterbalances the um, hindrance of ill will or aversion because as the mind becomes absorbed and wrapped, there's no room for that pushing away. We're so content to be present and in doing what we're doing, being where we are. The mind just isn't moving in the way it usually does, so there's no room. And this comes about through interest, through the vitaka and vichara and the landing in our experience over and over again. And the jhanic factors are somewhat sequential. So pity, uh, this rapture, joy, which is quite energetic, the next factor is sukha. Sukha, happiness or pleasure, opposite of dukkha. Sukha. I love one definition of sukha, happy contentment of mind and body. And it's, it comes out of rapture. So sukha is often present in pity, but pity has to diminish for sukha to become uh, present though there's one teacher that always talks about piti sukha, just puts them together, and there's a way in which you can kind of work with them as one. But I think helpful to tease out uh, this the difference. And sukhas, there's often a sense of relief after the energy of rapture. There's a sweetness to it, a softness, this contentment, and the mind is just again a deeper level of settledness and and. Uh, and happiness, often we smile a little with sukha. Um, And and it's uh, just a sort of natural progression as we lose interest in the rapture, as the rapture kind of um, balances out, then this sukha can become present. And sukha balances restlessness and worry, those hindrances of restlessness and worry. Because again, we find contentment in the experience, in the simplicity of just developing the mindfulness. Restlessness, you know, is worry and agitation. All of the planning and the energetic uh, uh, movements of the body. In sukha, everything is calming and stilling. As the sukha deepens and the restlessness also uh, diminishes, it leads to the last factor, ekagata one-pointedness of mind. And this uh, factor is often, it can be synonymous with concentration or samadhi, 
one-pointedness of mind. Again, the mind collected and unified. But a kagata has, a, for me, a slightly different functioning. Ajahn Sumedho has a great definition of it. He calls ekagata the one point that includes everything. So again, not this, even though it's one point, it's not a narrowing. It's a landing in experience with a mind that's unified and undistracted. Can be unified and undistracted about samatha practice, simply the breath, but can also be about changing experiences just seeing things come and go, but the mind is steady and still in that changing experience. So there's a lot of equanimity in uh, Ekagata. And it's a further refining of the contentment. And the Buddha would say things like, peace is the highest happiness. This is heading in this direction. And Ekagata is the antidote, the balancing to greed, sense desire, the the, the mind that's looking for happiness out there, that has the idea that happiness um, is going to be found by getting the next hit, the next thing, and it's out there somewhere. Ekagata is this balancing. Everything is steady and still in this moment, and nothing needs to be taken away, and nothing needs to be added. And we start to really see for ourselves how the sense-desire kind of happiness is unreliable. It's fleeting, it's changing. Sure, it has its momentary pleasures, not to deny that, especially for us as lay people, but you've seen for yourself, gone, 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 over and over again. And this points to a deeper capacity for contentment and ease um, that the sense-desires can never give. So that's a sort of brief going through of these five factors. Um, but how does this actually work? It's not like, oh, now I know this list, I'll just go, down, go out and get me some. Um, it really is through uh, this deepening and steadying through the vitaka and vichara and the skillful working. The, the more skillfully... Uh, with openness and interest and acceptance and compassion, we work with the hindrances. As the hindrances suppress and, and, and diminish, these factors naturally are encouraged. Concentration, one of the benefits of concentration, it is, has the capacity to suppress the hindrances. It's why we like it so much, because we're not so beset by these torments of mind. But it doesn't uproot them. Concentration doesn't uproot the hindrances. It needs insight to uproot the hindrances and the kalesas. So we work skillfully with the hindrances when they're wise. We bring our wisdom mind, our discernment to it. <clears throat> All of the tools and techniques that we've talked about. One of our teachers here, Philip Moffat, said, try not to be disturbed by the disturbances. That's just that ability to, to just let it go. It's nature. Don't get so upset that it's here, and that will uh, tend to diminish it. All of the um, reinforcing of noticing the good qualities when they're present, the peace, the calm, the generosity, the kindness, the metta, this is also um, important. Delighting in the wholesome. Letting yourself really know when the mind is in a skillful, wholesome place of peace or calm or gratitude. We feel that just as we work with the hindrances to diminish their pull and power over us, so we cultivate these wholesome states of mind. 
And as I said, these factors are somewhat sequential. It has to begin with vitaka, this intentional connecting with experience. And then vichara comes in its way. Can't have vichara without vitaka. The more consistent the vichara is, the more the rapture, the steadiness of mind uh, will arise. But vitaka and vichara are the only ones we really have any control over. They are the engines of practice and all of the others develop out of that. And this is the good news. These are intentional movements of mind. We can't like force them with a sledgehammer, but as we get interested, things become interesting and this, these two factors They feed themselves. They're actually cyclical and support each other. As we develop and strengthen that capacity, the rapture can happen. And rapture doesn't have to be ecstatic. Rapture literally means absorption in the object. So just this feeling of steadying, just the sense of not needing anything else, this is uh, the start of pity. And as that sort of sense of being locked in subsides, then the more open sense of contentment can come. And then once the mind is really happy, steady, then the one-pointedness, the simplicity of the ekagata. This can be an an easeful cycle. You know, there's some effort that we need to put in, but over-efforting doesn't work. Because the contentment side of it is so important. We can't do it out of grasping. It's contentment, not grasping, that gets it there. And so in this uh, sequence, like many of the Buddhist maps, there's this arc to practice. We start with the foundational practices. Same thing happens in the seven factors. Mindfulness is kind of the engine. Then it goes to the energizing, to the calming. Here, the engines are vitaka and vichara. And then pity is kind of the peak experience, but naturally the practice goes to more calming and simplicity. This is the direction we go in over time, but even over the course of a practice period. This, this, you know, we put in the energy, we put in the intentional practice, we sort of build up the energy, but then we can rest more, trust more. There's this place where practice becomes more easeful. We've done the initial work. Um, And to see we're not just looking for peak or high experiences. It's not about that. It really is the calm and the equanimity, the more subtle experiences where the mind can open into the deep truths and the freedom and happiness that's possible. Because our goal here isn't to get concentrated. It isn't even to experience certain states, even though they sound kind of cool or interesting. Our aspiration is insight, freedom, deep happiness and contentment, liberation. But these factors and the deepening of concentration are really helpful tools towards that. You often hear about um, uh, 
peak athlete, athletes who are really at the top of their sport, whatever it is, when they're preparing for competition, they'll go train at altitude, right? And then, when, but when they come down to a lower altitude, their blood is like filled with oxygen, and they can really excel at whatever it is they're doing. It's a common thing. Guy and I actually had this experience. We um, went to Yellowstone. Last year, beautiful. I'd never been there before, and just amazing experience. But it's about eight thousand feet, and we were just doing day hikes and seeing the sights there. But then we came home and did a bike ride that we often would go for about twenty-four miles, and noticed without even trying, cut like minutes, minutes, many minutes. We never made that good time again. But it was effortless because of that change from the high altitude to being back in Woodacre concentration is kind of like that. It's the wind in your sails. It's the, the training of the mind to develop these beautiful qualities the Buddha often spoke about, that the mind is malleable, wieldy, and strong. The mind is an ally. These are the qualities that develop as we steady in practice, not needing to deepen to deep states of absorption, but just this kanika samadhi, the steadiness and continuity at practice. And as the deepening stills, the mind becomes steadier, this leads to the deepest stillness, the ultimate letting go, where the mind is just ripe for insight. I want to just finish with one of the little passages from the suttas that is one of these koans that just invites this kind of letting go. The Buddha was giving teachings to the devas, these beings from the higher realms. And a a deva asked, uh, the Buddha made this statement, I crossed over the flood, and the flood is uh, suffering, samsara. I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the deva says, but how, dear sir, dear sir, did you cross over the flood without pushing forward or without, and without staying in place? The Buddha said, when I pushed forward, I whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. So I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. It's talking about a kind of stillness that's out of time and place a steadiness of mind and heart that allows the deepest opening and the highest happiness. So let's just let the words settle into silence.
Thank you for your attention. If anything I've said tonight has been helpful and opening for you, just let it rest in your being. Don't think about it too much. There's nothing here to strive after. That's just counterproductive. And if it also it seems too... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.